Tonight we are going to try to finish up the study in the middle section of our three-part longer study on Christ in the Old Testament. Our working concept is that the Old Testament is literally filled with references to the Lord Jesus. Um, We spent a good amount of time studying the prophecies which described in great detail his coming, who he would be, what he would do, what he would be like, and the purpose for his first coming into this world. And then more recently, we've been focused on his actual appearances, not as an incarnate human being, but in two formats or in two presentations. In some cases, he appeared in the form of a human being, a man, and in other cases he appeared in the form of an angel, but a special angel among the angels, an angel identified as the angel of the Lord. And uh, we are just finishing up our uh, multi-part study on the Christophanies. And this is, um, this is going to finish this section, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, David's going to start the, the um, exposition of the book of Esther. And then uh, after that, Steve is going to do a segment on systematic theology. And then eventually I'll be back to finish out our study on Christ in the Old Testament by looking at the types and the shadows of Christ, uh, the symbolic presentations and representations and references to the Lord in the Old Testament. All right, so um, I'll read again our working definition of what a Christophany actually is. Uh, First, all the Old Testament appearances of the Lord, where the Lord is visible and seen by at least one individual, are what we call theologically Christophanies, appearances of Christ. They can also be categorized as theophanies, which are appearances of God, because, of course, Christ is the second person of the Godhead. But by definition uh, that I've come up with, in a Christophany, the Lord appears in one location, in an actual, visible, definite way. They are not, these appearances are not permanent or lasting, but temporary to that moment of history. And as we've seen already, some of those moments of history are longer than others. Some took place in a single day. Others lasted as long as, in a couple of cases, a 40-year-long Christophany, uh, in in specific uh, in the in the uh, journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness and the presence of the pillar of fire and cloud that was with them throughout that 40-year journey. Uh, But Christophanies, in every case, are not incarnations, but, as I mentioned before, a presentation where the Lord appears as a human or an angel, but does not become or did not become either human or angel. He temporarily took the form, but not the nature, of a man or an angel. All right, so for this last study, I've got more to cover than I should, uh, and I probably won't finish out, but what I've got is uh, I've got the outline of all of these appearances that we've studied in our most uh, last week and this week included. Uh, Those outlines will be available for you. We'll hand them out if you'd like one at the end of the study tonight. And any that I don't end up covering, I've got nine prepped for tonight that will finish out the Old Testament appearances of Christ. Uh, let's say I only get through six or seven of them, uh, you'll have the information in the outline for the ones that I don't have time to cover. All right, so this first one, 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is the Lord appearing to Elijah the prophet. And let me read those, uh, those four verses, and then I'll, I'll kind of fill in the details for us. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up, to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, 
You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. All right, the setting in this circumstance is um, the king of, remember at this point in history, this is right after, soon after, the time of Solomon. And because of Solomon's uh, spiritual compromise and his sins of idolatry, the Lord had pronounced a judgment upon the nation that he ruled over that would be fulfilled not in Solomon's day. The Lord was merciful in the days of Solomon for the sake of the faithfulness of Solomon's father, David. But he had, the Lord had announced that once Solomon died, that the Lord was going to bring a judgment upon the nation of Israel. And he was going to divide Israel into two nations, a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom would be called Israel. The southern kingdom would be called Judah. The city of Jerusalem was in that southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was also identified with Samaria, which is identified or mentioned in these verses that we just read, because Samaria is in the north. It's in that northern territory, and it became the capital city of the northern kingdom, just like Jerusalem was of the southern kingdom. So we're dealing here with a king of Israel, king of the northern kingdom, Ahaziah, and he is not a good guy. So if you study through the books of First and Second Kings, we're not doing that for this particular study, you'll notice, and you probably have noticed before, the, the, um, the history of the various kings, both of the northern and southern kingdom, was really a mixed history. Some of them were faithful to the Lord, the minority of them were faithful to the Lord, and many of them were unfaithful to the Lord. Ahaziah is one of the unfaithful ones. So what happens here is Ahaziah has what we would call an accident which spiritually understood in the context here is no real accident. He is in his upper chamber and there's a lattice work that he falls through apparently from the upper chamber down to a lower level and severely injures himself. And it describes that he's laid up sick in bed. What we would describe as he's not so much sick as he is injured. And he's concerned in the state of his injury whether he's ever going to recover And because he's a religious-minded man, he decides, I'm going to go seek of one of the gods, uh, gods with a little g, small g. Rather than seeking the one true God of Israel, he decides to send a messenger to, uh, we don't know exactly where it is, but some location which represents the worship of an idolatrous false god of the peoples that surrounded Israel. And this false god was known as Baal Zebub. It's an interesting, I mean, there's a whole backstory here. I wish I had time to fully develop it. But the, the name of this false god literally translated as Lord of the Flies. I mean, can you imagine? I'm going to worship the Lord of the Flies. So what are you in charge of? Well, I'm in charge of all the flies on the face of the earth. And the reason why he sends a messenger to this particular idolatrous God, is in that cultural perspective in those days, the Lord of the Flies was the one who was in charge of both giving people diseases and removing diseases from them. He was the healing God. If there was to be healing among the idolatrous false gods, this is the one that you would seek. And so this king sends. He wants to know from Beelzebub's messengers whether he is going to be healed of this injury and ever fully recover from it. Now in this circumstance, as he sends his messenger, because it says in verse 2, so he sent messengers telling them, go and inquire for me of Baalzebub, whether I shall recover from this sickness. And then in verse 3, in the midst of this, in another location, is Elijah the prophet, who is a prophet that at this point in history, at this moment in history, the truest of the prophets of the Lord, who has a true relationship with the Lord, a true calling and assignment from the Lord. And the angel of the Lord in verse 3 speaks to Elijah the Tishbite. Now, we're not given details here about whether Elijah literally and actually saw in this moment the angel of the Lord, but in the way, in the context, the way it's described and worded, the likelihood is he didn't just hear a disembodied voice because there's never a point that I've found in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord 
uh, is only speaking in a disembodied way to those that he intends to communicate with. So I believe that there's an implied appearance of the Lord here and a message, of course, that the angel of the Lord wants to communicate to Elijah the prophet. And the message is, arise and go until the messengers of the king of Samaria says, say to them, meaning he's going to interrupt their approach to Beelzebub with a true message from the true and living God who is then going to send those messengers back to the king before they even speak to the false god. And the message is, what, you needed to go seek the Lord of the Flies? Is that because there's no real God in Israel? It's, a, it's an ironic word of rebuke to the king. And then the implication of that ironic word of rebuke is the Lord intends to judge the king for his idolatry and his lack of faith in the one true God. And so he uh, adds to it a word of judgment. And the word of judgment in verse 4 is, To the king you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And what happens in the next few verses is his life story unfolds and ends exactly as the angel of the Lord had spoken um, this message would occur. He dies from this injury, never recovering from it. So uh, what is the presentation of the angel of the Lord's appearance here to Elijah? I believe the presentation is the Lord is the protector of his own name. Meaning the Lord has a strong interest in the revelation of himself. We know from our study of the names of the Lord together that the names of the Lord represent the true nature and character of the Lord. And any false god who lays claim to being a Lord to be worshipped is in direct competition to the one true and living God. And so here the Lord is protecting the integrity, the unique nature and character of his own name in this interruption of his effort to seek this idolatrous false god. And the purpose here is the Lord reminds the king that there is one true God in Israel. And if the message by itself was not sufficient to remind the heart of the king of that, he's going to learn the hard way through the circumstances that will unfold exactly as the Lord prophesied in which he will die of his injury. The implication being he never repented, never turned back to the Lord and died under the Lord's judgment. All right, our next Christophany is in the same chapter and we'll pick up the thread now in verse 9. And this is again an appearance to Elijah the prophet, reading from verse 9 through to verse 15. And I'll, once I read this portion, I'll fill in the gaps of the, the event that's unfolding. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill. This is the captain of a, a group of soldiers now, 50 soldiers. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, meaning as you've just called me, if I really am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, this is a king that's not learning as he's going. Again, this is the third time now the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came, and instead of making demands like the first two captains did, he came and fell on his knees before Elijah. No doubt because he's heard that the previous two groups of 50 and their captains were burned from the fire of heaven and died. So he comes up before Elijah, and instead of demanding, he falls on his knees before Elijah and entreats him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now 
Let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord, and this is when the Christophany begins. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose, that's Elijah, and went down with him to the king. All right, so the setting in this particular case is Elijah sends the king uh, the message that he will die in the judgment. And in this circumstance, um, the king sends these three companies of soldiers to bring Elijah to him and the angel of the Lord and interrupts the third interaction between Elijah and the captain of the king's army, uh, or at least the 50 soldiers. And uh, he directs Elijah to go with the third captain of the king. All right, so what is the, pre- the presentation here in this particular appearance of the Lord? I see this one as the Lord is protector. In the previous one, at the beginning of chapter one, I saw it as the Lord is the protector of his own name. Here, the Lord is also showing himself as protector, but now he's protector of his messenger. He is making a special appearance just for Elijah's sake. The captain doesn't see the angel of the Lord. The 50 soldiers with him don't see the angel of the Lord. The king that he's going to personally deliver a message to don't see the angel of the Lord. In this case, it's only Elijah and us through his eyes reading the account see the angel of the Lord. And so the Lord makes a special appearance just to assure Elijah's heart, okay, you are safe to go with this captain and his soldiers, they're not going to take advantage of you. I've softened them up for you. I've gotten their minds right. The first two captains certainly weren't. So the Lord dealt with them in fiery judgment. This third captain has the appropriate perspective. So the captain, what's, what we're meant to see in the story is the captain, the first two captains were afraid only of one person. They were afraid of the king who sent them on their assignment because kings in those days if you were a, a soldier or a captain working for the king and you didn't please your, your king, you were subject to death penalty for certain. So the, the soldiers were very highly motivated to please the king for whom they worked. So those two soldiers only, those two captains only were concerned with the king that sent them on their errand. This third captain has a double fear. He fears the king that he works for so much that even though he knows the two previous captains have lost their lives, and the two previous companies of 50 have lost their lives, he's still willing to go and talk to Elijah because he knows if he doesn't, he will lose his life to the king. But as he does, he has a completely different perspective. Instead of arrogant, he's humble, and he cries out for the Lord's mercy through Elijah. And in that circumstance, he shows that he, yes, he fears the king, and that's why he's fulfilling his assignment, but he also fears the Lord and he fears the messenger or the prophet of the Lord and is recognizing that he is going to lose his life by displeasing either one. So he obeys the king, but he does so with a very humble and respectful spirit and the Lord preserves him and uh, does not execute him like the previous captains. And the Lord shows himself to Elijah as the protector of his messenger. The purpose of this one is simply the Lord assuring Elijah of safe passage to his assignment to communicate face-to-face with the king. All right, we're going to stay in 2 Kings and jump over now to chapter 19. 19. And we're going to start reading in verse 2 Kings 19, verse 32 through 36. And I'll fill in the details again after I read the passage. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. 
And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Those are 185,000 invading soldiers. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh, that being the capital city of the Assyrian empire at that time in history. All right, so what's the setting? The king of Assyria, who is Sennacherib, this is an a nation outside of covenant relationship with the Lord. They're to the north of the northern kingdom and to the north, of course, of the southern kingdom as well. And in this circumstance, the king of Assyria decides that he is going to, he is going to invade um, the, the kingdom of the Lord, the, the Lord's people, and he's going to uh, overwhelm, his intention is, his plan is, He's going to overwhelm the city of Jerusalem. And what had happened just prior to this event, and I read just a small portion of it, is that the Lord through Isaiah the prophet, and this is covered again in Isaiah's prophecy later in Isaiah's book, but here the, the historical record of it is preserved for us in Second Kings. Isaiah began to prophesy by the word of the Lord and say that, in spite of the visible circumstance, the visible circumstance being that the kingdom, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is the capital city was not a, a small kingdom. It was not a, a weak kingdom, but it had no natural ability to face and fight off, fend off an invasion from such a large and dominant empire and army as the Assyrian Empire. And they brought in a minimum of, and the implication is not every single Assyrian was killed in this judgment, but they brought in at least 185,000 soldiers in this army to invade Jerusalem. And that invading army was nearly the size of the actual population of the city at that point in time, far more than uh, Jerusalem would have been able to, to fight off. And as uh, the king came in, Isaiah prophesied and said that the Lord himself was going to stand to defend his people and his city from this invasion, and that the king would not, the king of Assyria, Snacherb, would not even lay a siege mount against it. He would not shoot an arrow into the city, that he, the Lord himself was going to intervene. And he did so by a Christophany. He did so by appearing one night just before the, inv- the invasion reached the city of Jerusalem and he went out into the camp of Assyria and there's no indication here that any of the Assyrians saw the Christophany, saw the angel of the Lord. Uh, most likely, most of them were sleeping in their tents. I'm sure there were guards on guard duty surrounding the camp. But the angel of the Lord entered into all of the tents of the encampment of the Assyrians and um, killed the 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. And as um, Sennacherib woke up the next morning and saw the devastation of his army, he changed his mind exactly as Isaiah said he would. And he turned around, tucked his tail beneath his legs, between his legs, and he headed back to um, his capital city to regroup. So the presentation here, I see it as a third um, expression of the Lord as protector. So in the first appearance to Elijah back in chapter 1, I saw it as the Lord as the protector of his name, his own, the integrity of his own name. The second appearance, the Lord as the protector of his messenger. And here, the Lord reveals himself as the protector of his holy city, his appointed city, the city in which the temple that he identified as his house the place of his presence in the midst of his people, the Lord as the protector of the city of Jerusalem. And the purpose here is the Lord guarding his covenant people for his own purposes to preserve them from being overwhelmed by the Assyrian invasion. All right, let's uh, move over now to the book, next book, which is the book of First Chronicles, uh, to chapter 21. 
This is an appearance to King David. And um, I have taught on this before, but it's been some period of time this years ago when I was doing the, uh, the study for our men's breakfast through the life of King David. And I did an entire message on this uh, section, which I won't have time to do tonight. There's some amazing connections that are in this section. Um, I'll just briefly touch on them for the sake of our time tonight. So I'm going to read the first 17 verses. It's a long section. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. That means to take a census of the number of people that lived within the parameters of Israel. And by this time, um, David has united all of Israel. This is before later the nation is split into the northern and southern kingdom. So all 12 tribes are united under the leadership of King David, and he decides to take a census to number the people. So David said to Joab, who's the uh, commander of, of David's army, David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, <clears throat> go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, and Joab was not always a good guy, but in this case he was. Joab discerns and realizes David is not doing this out of obedience to the Lord or faith in the Lord. He's doing it more out of a natural inclination to just want to to gain confidence in the power of the strength of the numbers of his nation. Not a good thing for the king. Job said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the kingdom, my, my Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab, meaning the king wouldn't listen to him. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel. He basically goes on the king's assignment. He knows it's wrong, but he's going to obey the king. Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah... 470,000 who drew the sword, about a million and a half soldiers. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So he obeys the king, but only in part. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And, God, and David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. Uh, this is Gad as a prophet to the king. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things they offer you. Meaning, um, this sin requires a judgment, and I'm going to allow you three judgment options. You pick how I judge you. Three things they offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will. Either three years of famine, not just for David personally, but the whole nation. Either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you. Or else three days of the sword of the Lord pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord. This is a description before it happens of a coming Christophany with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress, meaning there's no good options here. There's no good choices. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man meaning he chose option number three, which also happened to be the shortest and most compact option, but none of the options were light options. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell, meaning they died. And God sent the angel, this is the angel of the Lord that's just been referenced by Gad, the prophet. God sent that angel of the Lord to Jerusalem to destroy it. 
But as he was about to destroy it, meaning right on the verge of carrying out an utter devastation on the capital city, as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. So what we have here is the father in heaven instructing the son who is the angel of the Lord on earth in the midst of carrying out the judgment of God to stop the judgment before he enacts the fullness of the devastation on the city. The angel of the Lord was standing as he stopped the judgment. He was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell down upon their fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. And we see here David in this short sequence of events at his worst. You could make a case and say maybe the Bathsheba uh, incident was David at his worst, but this this is in that same basic category. David failing to trust the Lord at a deep and serious level. And it also shows at the end of the event, David at his best, which is as the judgment is beginning to unfold, David uh, falls on his face and intercedes to the Lord on behalf of the people and essentially says, let me be the magnet that draws the, the judgment because I'm the one that caused it. I'm the one that should suffer from it. My people, your people, the sheep of your hand, your pastor uh, should not, Uh, suffer for this I should be the one in my father's house should be the one to suffer from it all right so um, in this circumstance what we see is that David sees the well the angel of the Lord is standing by the threshing floor of Ornan and in the next one which is in this same chapter I'll describe that in a little bit more detail but when David sees the angel of the Lord he sees him standing between earth and heaven and in his hand there's a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem meaning he's poised to enact judgment upon the city of Jerusalem and the Lord in heaven God the Father speaks to the angel of the Lord to to stay his hand and sheath his sword essentially to stop the judgment but the the um, the actual appearance, David doesn't see him standing, even though he was at the threshing floor of Ornan. He sees him, in a sense, standing between heaven and earth. He, he sees him as in a very important role of intermediary or mediator between heaven and earth. Um, he is representing the Lord's purposes in heaven to those who are on earth and the people's need on earth to the one who is in heaven. All right, so the presentation here in this first portion is the Lord as the one who judges sin that requires judgment. And the purpose of the presentation as judge is the Lord holding the king and Israel accountable for their sin. It is interesting that um, it's 70,000 of the people of Israel that die rather than the king even though it was the king's sin. And the implication of that is that the king is responsible for the sin, and in his intercession he cries out and and fully takes responsibility. But the Lord never judges innocent people as though they were guilty. And so in this circumstance, what is made known in the degree of judgment that the Lord does ordain is that there is a shared responsibility for this failure to trust the Lord as the Lord over his people, and that David's inclination to take a census and number the people so he can have confidence in how large their numbers are is a shared failure of faith, not just by the king, but by the entire nation that suffers under the judgment. 
All right, now the next one, same chapter, let's pick up verse 18, and we'll continue to read through verse 28. Interestingly here, the, the angel of the Lord doesn't leave the scenario, but now reveals himself to more than David, who had seen him between heaven and earth. The Lord reveals himself to Ornan, the Jebusite, whose property this appearance of the Lord takes place on. So let's read from verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad, that's the prophet to the king, to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So where the judgment stopped was where the angel of the Lord was located at the moment God, the Father in heaven spoke to God the Son, the angel of the Lord, to stop the judgment. And he happened to be located on the property of Ornan the Jebusite where he was as we're about to see, it was during a time of harvest, and he was threshing his harvest in this location, Ornan was, that's where the judgment stopped. But now, the angel of the Lord commands the prophet of the Lord to speak to David to say, you should build an altar on this exact same location where this judgment stopped. Now, verse 19, so David went up at Gad's word, meaning he obeyed the word of the Lord through Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now, Ornan was threshing wheat. He's the farmer. He's the landowner. He turned, Ornan turns, and saw the angel, which is the angel of the Lord. And his four sons who were with them hid themselves. So Ornan and, by implication, Ornan's four sons, these five men who are threshing, all see the angel of the Lord. And they are deeply affected by the appearance of the angel of the Lord, and afraid of him, and hide themselves. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and went out from the threshing floor, and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor that I build on it, an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it meaning I'm giving it to you, I'm not charging you for it. Take it and let my Lord the King do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan, 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. He, he buys the threshing floor of Ornan. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and this is the same angel of the Lord who was there to judge The Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath, meaning the judgment that had previously been ordered by the Lord would now no longer be carried out. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar burnt offering, which was part of that tabernacle, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. They were in a different location entirely. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Now, backstory and just some connection here. Um, You have to do a little um, cross-connecting to other passages, but uh, trust me on this for the sake of our time. This location, the threshing floor of Ornan, was located at Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah also happens to be what will later become the greater region of the city of Jerusalem. And this is the exact spot and location where eventually the Lord will be nailed to a cross and will die as a sacrifice, which will stop the ultimate plague of what is required for the sin of the people who are cut off from the one true and living God, just like the plague stopped here in history. The, the greater plague of sin will eventually be stopped by the Lord himself as he dies on the cross. All right. Uh, in the presentation here, I see the Lord as revealing himself as the merciful one. 
The people deserve judgment. David deserved judgment. But David will survive this judgment of the Lord and the greater population of Jerusalem, even though the entire city, no doubt, bore its own guilt before the Lord. Uh, Because David repented with a humble heart and sought the Lord and interceded on behalf of the people, the Lord heard his cry. The Lord relented of the judgment that he had ordained and the Lord showed mercy to the people and showed mercy to King David. And the purpose here is the Lord relenting of the deserved judgment of the king and of the people because of the altar that was built by, the, by King David, by the Lord's direction. That's the Lord's merciful provision, gracious provision, and because of the sacrifice that is offered upon that altar. And this will also be, by the way, the location where the temple uh, will be built by David's son, Solomon, in the next generation of time. All right, let's head over to one of the most famous of the Old Testament Christophanies and one that's a little bit different and unique among the Christophanies. That's in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 6. We're making good time, so we're going to get close to being finished with the ones I have outlined tonight. I think most of us are well familiar with this. But I'll read from verse 1 of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. These are the seraphim covering their own face. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the, thre- and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now at that point, uh, in the next few verses, there is a personal interaction between the Lord sitting upon his throne and Isaiah who is spiritually present in this uh, heavenly scene and this is certainly a, a vision a vision experience that Isaiah is given of heaven itself one of the few in all of history and all of God's word where the Lord in a sense brought someone from earth spiritually up into heaven to be a personal eyewitness of what takes place in the throne room of heaven the uh, headquarters of all of existence and all of creation. So what is going on here? What's the setting? Um, I won't take the time to read it, uh, but for those who want to uh, kind of fill in the background a little bit in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 26, the first 15 verses, there's more history, kind of an overview of the story of King Uzziah. And he is mentioned in this setup for the experience that Isaiah is given in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, who was this king? He was, he was one of the good guys, one of the minority good kings faithful to the Lord, walking with the Lord. None of the good kings, including King David, the greatest of the good kings of Israel, uh, none of the good kings are perfect. They all have flaws, but the difference between them and the bad guys is the bad guys are given over to their own indulgences and their own fleshly desires and usually to idolatrous worship of false gods. The good kings are, are committed to the Lord. Even imperfectly, they're walking with the Lord they're desiring to obey the Lord. They're desiring to faithfully follow the Lord. They're, they're um, committed to the word of God and the, the laws of God. And they are, however imperfectly they're doing it, they are walking faithfully with the Lord. So here's a problem. King Uzziah has died. It is always a problem in the history of the Old Testament when one of the good kings dies because there is no guarantee that the man who is going to replace him as the authority over the entire nation is going to be as good as he was. And oftentimes good kings were replaced by 
wicked ones. So in the year that King Uzziah died, it is a time of, of uncertainty for the entire nation. And there, as far as the Lord is concerned, um, he has a purpose for the, for the succeeding generation, but the people of God are not certain about what is going to happen next. Now, in this circumstance, the Lord calls the prophet Isaiah to come up from the earth into the throne room of heaven itself. Why did the Lord give him this special privilege of being lifted up from earth into heaven and into the throne room of God? Because on earth, everything is uncertain. On earth, the, the, the story of history from a human naturalistic perspective is it's just a story of uncertainty folded in uncertainty, wrapped in more uncertainty, and no one knowing what's going to happen next. But the big picture in the ultimate story of history is not what might or might not happen on earth next, but what is ordained in heaven from the throne of God. And so when the people of God are struggling in their greatest moment of uncertainty, now that this good and faithful king has died. The Lord calls the prophet of God to come up into the throne room of heaven in order for Isaiah's heart to be anchored with certainty to the one who is sitting upon the throne so that when he goes back to speak to the people of God, he can speak with that great confidence about how certain things will be because of the one who sits upon the throne in heaven. Now, I'm going to read just one verse from the New Testament. This is from the Gospel of John, and it is connected to what we just read in Isaiah 6. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, John makes this interesting comment in his Gospel account. And... I'll read a couple of verses just to get the flow. I'll start reading in verse um, verse 36 of John 12. While you have the light, believe in... This is the Lord Jesus speaking. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things, verse 41 is our key verse, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So what John adds as a comment to explain these hard words that the Lord spoke about Israel's heart condition um, from the Lord, uh, John commented and said that this is all in the context of the Lord revealing his glory to Isaiah. And the one place in the prophecy of Isaiah and and, uh, commentators both in the Gospel of John and in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, are in agreement that, that John is referencing the experience of, of Isaiah chapter 6, the heavenly throne room vision that the Lord had given him. And he saw, Isaiah saw the Lord's glory in this circumstance. Now I mentioned this is a little bit different than the other Christophanies. All of the other Christophanies that we've studied so far were Christophanies of the Lord on earth, the Lord appearing on earth. In this case, it is a Christophany, just as certainly as the others that we've studied, but this does not take place on earth. This takes place in heaven. But the Lord has brought Isaiah to heaven to observe it and to be a witness of it. And so how does the Lord make himself known in this circumstance? Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, a year of great uncertainty for the people of God, I saw the Lord. Now we know in this case that Isaiah did not see God the Father. Why did he not see God the Father? 
because God the Father is invisible and he's been revealed throughout scripture as being invisible in that sense, unseeable. You can recognize the hand, the presence, the activity, the influence, the purpose and the will of the Father by what he has revealed in history and what he has ultimately revealed in the person of his son and what he's revealed through his word. But you never see a form when God the Father makes himself known other than the ultimate form of his son. But here Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. He sees, he's, he's in heaven, he sees the central throne of God in heaven, and he sees a form, he sees a person who he rightly recognizes and identifies as the Lord, seated upon the throne. The one he sees is not the first person of the Trinity, but must be the second person of the Trinity. And so in that sense, it is a Christophany, but in a heavenly setting rather than an earthly setting. He sees the Lord sitting upon the throne. He sees him wearing a robe, and he sees the train of his robe. And he sees various angelic entities identified as groupings, as a group of as seraphim. These are the four special, um, what are called in uh, the book of Revelation, four, four heavenly beings, four living beings that are in the closest proximity to the throne of God and having a special assignment to declare things about the one who sits upon the throne. So he sees all of that, but he sees actually the Lord Jesus sitting upon the throne. All right, this brings us to the next one in the book of Daniel. Again, maybe maybe the most famous of all of the Christophanies. This is the Lord revealing himself in the fiery furnace ordered by King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 19. There's a whole backstory in the chapter leading up to this, but for the sake of our time, I'll start reading in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, the greatest nation on the face of the earth in terms of of a military might and power and dominance at this point. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace, he, and he, this isn't because they're cold, this is because he intends to execute them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Meaning he wants it as hot as it can possibly get. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then those men, or these men, were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up, meaning the soldiers that cast the men died because they got too close to the fire the men who took up the three. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, who is observing all this from somewhat of a distance, and is apparently, I don't know the exact situation of the furnace, but he's able to look into the furnace from a distance, a safe distance. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselor, Counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here, then they came out from the fire, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And the king answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god 
except their own God. All right, the background, the setting is simply, they're in captivity. All of Israel is in captivity to Babylon. They've been conquered by the Babylonians and carried away as slaves into, into Babylon. And during their 70 years of captivity, um, they've been incorporated into the society and culture of the Babylonians, but as servants of the king. And um, there's a, a, a part of the backstory where some of the, some of the king's Babylonian servants had it out for these three individuals in particular, and for Daniel as well. Uh, and they try to set a trap for them. And the trap is uh, order, you know, order these men to, to bow down and, and to worship you as a god. And the three refuse to do so. And so the king adds to their captivity, which is already a judgment from the Lord, by requiring... A, an ultimate level of persecution, which is they're going to be martyred for their refusal to honor the king in, in idolatrous worship and remain, they've chosen to remain faithful to the one true and living God in this circumstance. So um, we've already read how it all unfolds. And what happens in the actual Christophany event is that the king himself sees the three men that have been cast into the flame uh, no doubt to instantly die. The soldiers who cast them in even die. But instead, he sees them alive and walking around in the midst of the flame. And there's a fourth figure in the flame, in the fire, in the furnace with them. And the king who doesn't know exactly theologically with precision how to identify what's going on, he just says, the fourth one is different than the other three. I can see a difference even through the flames. The fourth one has the appearance of a son of the gods and then later identifies him as an angel. So what we have here is a unique shared Christophany. The Christophany is given to the king of Babylon. He sees the fourth man who is the Lord himself in this circumstance of the furnace, but no doubt and even though the passage doesn't explicitly declare this, I am convinced that the three faithful young men who were surviving in the furnace saw the fourth man as well. So it's shared by the three faithful ones and by the king of Babylon. For the king, it has the beginning of a heart, uh, a heart-influencing experience. And the Lord here is, of course, presenting himself as a son of the gods. And that's within the framework of the king's understanding. Now, he's more than a son of the false gods. He is the son of the one true and living God. But this is how far Nebuchadnezzar is able to um, understand what's going on. The purpose here, the Lord is encouraging Israel in a time of captivity and a time of great persecution. But he is also beginning to speak to the heart of the hardened heart of the king of Babylon, who is Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so we're at the end of our time, and I got seven out of our nine finished. The only two that we didn't cover are both found in the prophecy of Zechariah. One in chapter one of Zechariah, verses seven through 19. The other is in chapter three of Zechariah, verses one through seven. Uh, I have these detailed in the notes. The essence of them is in the first, the angel of the Lord appears and intercedes with the Father God for the sake of Jerusalem. And the, the Lord, who is the angel of the Lord, is here showing in advance the principle that later Paul the Apostle in Hebrews is going to make known about one of the special assignments of the Lord Jesus, which is as the heavenly intercessor for the people of God. And then in the second case, it is an appearance in which the, um, the present high priest at the time, who is Joshua, is standing before the angel of the Lord with a, 
a, a, a filthy garment. He is the high priest of the people. His garment should be pristine, but it's filthy as symbolically representing the failure of the high priest to maintain himself in a consecrated heart condition before the Lord. And it also reflects on the heart condition of the nation. And in this circumstance, the angel of the Lord who he is standing before orders for his filthy garments to be removed. He takes away the iniquity, the angel of the Lord, it takes away the iniquity of the high priest and clothes him with new and pure and clean garments. And he gives a solemn assurance to the high priest, the angel of the Lord does. And in this case, the presentation is the Lord as the heavenly high priest uh, repairing and restoring the full spiritual functionality of the one of the three great offices of Old Testament authority, which are, of course, prophet, king, and high priest. And this is a restoration of the high priestly ministry of the Lord. But those two last portions, which we didn't have time to read, they'll be in the outlines that I have provided for you. All right, so I just want to say this as we end this long and detailed study on all of the Christophanies in the Old Testament. I want to remind us of something I mentioned right in the beginning, our intro to all of the Christophanies. Um, There's so many of them, and each one is so interesting in its own way. But each one of these represents in a unique and special way just how completely engaged and involved the Lord is with his purposes on earth unfolding exactly according to his plans and just how involved he is with his people and the key representatives of his people at critical moments of redemptive history. All of that leading up, of course, to the fullness of Revelation in Christ as he is later incarnated in Bethlehem. All right, God bless you. And uh, Lord willing, next week, David will be here to begin the new expositional study through the book of Esther.